Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, and I'm your host. And today we've got a couple of things to cover here in the intro, and then we'll get to the interview as quickly as possible. First, I'd like to introduce Bea Gonzalez, today's participant. I'm going to cover her bio website and then get to those details. Bea Gonzalez is a writer, lecturer, and educator. Her first two novels were published in Canada by HarperCollins and seven other countries, UK, US, Spain, Germany, Holland, and Serbia. Her second novel, The Mapmaker's Opera, was adapted into a musical by Kevin Purcell, which was featured in the 2014 New York Musical Theater Festival. She's also the founder of Sophia Cycles, a project aimed at teaching metaphorical thinking through an examination of classical works, fairy tales, and myths, and can also be found on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, at Sophia Cycles. Links below. Check her out. She's fantastic. And her book, Invocation, is the book we discussed today. And you'll learn plenty about that in a bit. But for now, I'd like to get to another, a couple other things, uh, including her website, actually, uh, which is sophiacycles.com. And she'll, she'll be excited. I didn't share this with Bea, but the Bea is the 99th episode of The Sacred Speaks. And the 100th episode will be with James Hollis, a mentor and colleague of mine for many years. He was on my dissertation committee and... Many of you know him. I have read almost every single one of his books, and he has many. And we talked about his book, The Broken Mirror, a fantastic read. Uh, it says, uh, refracted visions of ourselves is, is this idea that he brings to us. And we're going to be celebrating. I'm going to celebrate 100th episodes. We've been doing this uh, here at The Sacred Speaks for almost six years, and it has been one wild ride after another. Um, thank you for participating and allowing me to continue expanding this idea and project. I am totally and completely grateful. The Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative wellness center that my wife, Lila Scott Price, and I started about uh, 12 years ago. And we're growing and expanding, and there are plenty of offerings. If you're interested in getting some clinical connections, some acupuncture, some groups, check out the website at thecenterforhaas.com. Links below. And uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be interested. We've got a lot of cool stuff that we're growing and expanding into, including an arts event that's going to come around in August. So if you're in Houston in August, look forward to a very cool slam poetry process that we're putting on. And um, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to what we're doing. Um, also, I'd like to let you know about a workshop that's coming up at Esalen. Look at, go over to Instagram, at The Sacred Speaks. And you can check out in the bio page all the cool things that are coming up, including this Esalen workshop, October 23rd to 27th, on Ecstatic Experience, Music, and Young's Red Book. Uh, on top of that, check out the Sacred Speaks website, of course, at thesacredspeaks.com. And as always, hang out to the end of the episode, and you'll hear the full selection of the theme music for the Sacred Speaks, written by a bunch of guys in Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. For now, that we'll leave it there. I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Bea Gonzalez. Check her out on Instagram. She has tons of great quotes and passages that she's posting for everybody. It's a nice little reminder every day as you're scrolling through Instagram about uh, things that are have a bit more depth. <laughs> um, so for now, I'll leave it there, and thanks for joining, and continue to share and like and let people know about The Sacred Speaks. It certainly gives me the opportunity to grow and expand what's going on here. And for that, I am grateful. And we'll leave it there.
Bea Gonzalez, this is exciting. You and I, uh, for those listening and tuning in, we've already been cutting it up a little bit. So this is this is I'm, I'm in for a rich conversation here, and uh, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you doing what you're doing and for you making the time to be here. Well, thank you. This is wonderful. I've told you, and I say this honestly, you're one of the few podcasts I've followed quite religiously, actually, over the last, you've been on how long? Maybe a couple of years now? What? You, you used to so be only you, on podcast. That's right. So I think I've heard most of them, by the way. You know, this is quite, quite amazing. Now I listen to a lot of podcasts, but yours in particular, I like because you're going places a lot of people don't travel to. So, what and an uh, that's important, you know? No, no, I mean, for sure. And I shared, and I just told you before, and I want everybody to hear this, which is quite odd because you're introducing me, but I have a real love of Richard Rohr's work. And I, I want to say it here now that, I have shared, and I think people should listen to the interview that you did with Richard Rohr, because I think that was particularly powerful. In fact, I listened to it a couple of times, and I shared it as far as I could. So um, that's just one one that jumps to mind. So yeah, no, I am the one who's thrilled, John. <laughs> it's great to be on this. <laughs> it's mutual then. We can do that. We'll be mutually. Um, so, so you know what we're, I guess you as the listener um, know yeah. what we're operating with. You know, your book uh, will, of course, have been introduced, but Invocation, um, right. I my I was reading it on the plane. When I sent you a message, I was like, I'm reading your book, <laughs> and I was laughing, really enjoying yeah, the content. Okay. We'll get into this. Um, okay. But of course, also your website, I'll direct folks there, all the videos you've put out. Great work you're doing. So well, thank you. could you introduce that? Because you and I are going to share a lot of common threads here. Just set us up who you are, what you're up to, okay. uh, and then we'll start digging into questions. Hard, hard to set myself about who I am. All right. So I am a person who, hmm, okay, so I guess I'm a writer. That's what the way I'm defined. But like you, or maybe not like you, I have taken a pretty circuitous uh, route. So I started out wanting to be an academic. Uh, I did my uh, graduate work in London at the University of London. And I think I just fell in love with England. That's what was going on. But it was in history and literature. And I eventually started a PhD. But I realize that my fundamental problem is I, I, I just am interested in too many things. And as you know, with a PhD program, you're really limited to yeah. to what you can do. So, you know, after getting into a lot of debt in England, I thought, okay, this is oh. it. I really wanted to write. I wanted to write novels specifically. So I came back to Canada and I started my writing career. At first, I wrote things like, you know, uh, things, editorials, or newspaper, you know, what every writer does to get there. But then I was pretty lucky that HarperCollins bought my first novel quite quickly um after I wrote it and then you know so I thought oh I'm on the path to be a novelist <laughs> and so I started on that and then I published my second novel and it was translated into a bunch of languages and it was all going well and then you might understand this I'm, a, I'm at midlife now okay and I've taken two years of Jungian analysis I have enough hours to start the Jungian program but I have a very good analyst by this point and and she said you know I've been working you, with you for two three years and what I realized is you need a group you need people to talk to about mm -hmm. ideas you come into every analytical hour and you're so thirsty for discussion about all these things you're reading about and I didn't want to become an analyst so I thought okay well that makes sense going through a program where you're not and I was also had very young children I I just published my second novel I mean it was crazy so that's where I started um what I think is my really important work, which is the Sophia group, Sophia, which started by being called Jung Group. And, um, I, you know, the way I recruited people, I, I basically went out and my kids were really young and they were in programs. So I recruited the mothers 
who would listen to me talk about Jung and fairy tales? So, you know, half of them would turn away and think, oh, my God, this woman. But there were a couple at the beginning who said, oh, this sounds really interesting, even though I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And so I would bring them into my living room and one brought another and another brought another. And eventually social media brought people here. And now we're, uh, we've actually made ourselves into a collective. It's all women. And we're a lot of us, I'd say the majority, maybe 95% of us are artists in some way. We're either writers, a lot of visual artists. So it's just this great collection of people. And what brings us all together for five hours uh, at a time is wanting to have a conversation you're just not getting. I don't want to talk about politics. I don't really want to talk about, honestly, I don't want to talk about people's kids or whatever. I want to talk about something that's a little bit deeper. And I'm always amazed at what happens when we get together. It's alchemy. Something... Either we're talking about a dream, or we're talking about you know any anything that is uh, you could you could categorize maybe under the ages of active imagination. Whatever it is, there's some transformative thing that happens when people get together and decide they're going to dump their their egos at the door and just come in, and it's really raw um, and really open. And I'm I'm just in awe of the women that that are part of this because it requires a great deal of honesty to um, talk about some things, right? Because I think, okay, so the reason I love Jung's work primarily, and I'll see what you think about this, is ultimately, and this is why I love James Hollis, by the way, it, he they both ask you to take responsibility. Like, stop yeah. acting like the world is out to get you. Stop now. There are reasons, obviously, in all of our backgrounds why we're attracted to this. But I, I think it comes with a shock to people that, that hanging on to resentment and hatred or whatever it is isn't really going to get you very far, but it does mean you have to own a lot of this stuff. And somebody said to me early on, this isn't making my life easier, you know? <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> because, because you have to sort of say, yeah, that's me. That's yeah. really me. I mean, I may have attracted this person to my life, or maybe I needed to attract this person who I had a lousy relationship with in my life, et cetera. And so it's really powerful work, but it all goes down to the honesty of the people that that uh, were willing to do this, you know? I, and I know you probably see it in an analytical hour, but we're not analysts here. We're just people mm -hmm. deciding that the kind of material that's being put out in the world is really depressing and you need to counter it by having a different conversation. And that is how it extended to social media. Early on, I thought, well, I hate the conversations that are having on social media. Uh, they're divisive. They're, they're you know, just terrible. So I thought, well, the one thing I could do is I read a lot. And, and originally I started on Twitter and it was because I was collating all of my quotes. I read so much. I thought, well, this is a great way. I'll put them all there. Then I'll download them. And it's like an internal database of, from my own. But then people started following. So I thought, oh, okay. So then I felt responsible. So then I started doing more of that. And that eventually led, led to Instagram. But underneath it all, it's just that idea. Can you can you please just have a different conversation? Because the conversations we're having are troubling, in my view. You know, And so that's that's it. That's where we're at. And I guess in vacation... Um, the one thing that did happen that I should point out is after my second book was published, here I am, I'm all happy. I'd gone to Amsterdam, London to give a talk in the novel, and I just thought I can't do this anymore. I just, it doesn't speak to me anymore. So I, I, I talked to people and I thought, you know, you're nuts. The idea that even you're being, you you sold novels internationally. Um, but I really couldn't see myself heading in the same direction. So to me, it was a critical moment of saying, what am I here for? What am I doing? And I tried writing and I couldn't. I don't know if you've had this experience. When you're not authentically engaged, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. So what I was producing was something that I couldn't really resonate. It did not work. And so I said, okay, well, then maybe I don't need to write any more novels. But then about a year ago, I'm walking around with my dog. And um, these, and this is what I think you and I started talking about on Instagram. I started getting what I call a download. Just this 
you know, and I thought, okay, go away, because I thought the story was insane. It's not me. It's not lyrical. It's not historical. It didn't seem, you know, it was just this complete contemporary, and I think it was probably informed by all the kind of vitriol that I was seeing on online. But I, I, I couldn't get it to shut up. And it was my group when I told them this. They said, no, for God's sake, write it. And then I had the weirdest experience, because this really did not happen with my first two novels, in that I sat down, and I wrote it in 23 days. Like, I just just all came out. I, 23 days, no editing, nothing was done, right? And uh, and afterwards, looking back, I thought, okay, it wasn't really 23 days. It's been 15 years of incubation, <laughs> right. really, as you know, right? It's all the material. But the actual story and the characters and everything came down, and I started thinking about Jung's Red Book. And that's what you and I uh, spoke about and uh, had an interchange about on Instagram. I think that's what the Red Book's about. And I think a lot of people don't understand. And I get this question all the time. Oh, who did you model this character on? I modeled it on no one. They're all me. How can they not all be me? Mm. Um, they're basically a novel is the best way. And I tell people, please write a novel, not for publication, but to understand that there are these parts. It's like parts therapy. There are these parts of yourself that want to have a conversation. And it was very clear to me that the parts that I needed to integrate and been working on are the masculine and the feminine, right? And they're showing up intellectually. They're showing up in so many different ways. And the best way to have a conversation is through the vehicle of story. Because I think the story gives you the distance in some ways, and yet you're closer than anything, to be able to, to, to express things that maybe your conscious mind can't really grasp. So this is why I tell people you have to write a novel, and it's, again, not, not because you need anybody to read it even. It's the idea that you don't even know who's sitting there. <laughs> and who's sitting there is pretty interesting, you know? It reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a young guy. We were talking about AI and the, all this that's happening with ChatGPT and yeah. everything. And he, in the session, he's, he's a high school guy. I said, hey, are you guys all messing with this? He's like, yes. Every, every you know, like <laughs> yeah. I've got a bot on Snapchat. And he looked, and he, he got on his phone. He's like, hey, uh, Snapbot, would you write a paper on why young people shouldn't use AI to write papers? A thousand oh, words. I mean, a thousand <laughs> words. And what I said to him was, uh, those are great. That's amazing. I don't know what I would do at 16 years old with that at my fingertips. Yeah. It's an incredible tool um, that could easily be mistaken and create an obviously massive shadow dynamic. And... Um, what will not appeal to a 16-year-old guy is that writing is an act of imagination and discovery, yeah. and yeah. you get to know you. And we yeah. think it's about regurgitating information and reporting on something, and yeah. this is where you come in with literature. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I was talking about before this new movement that seems to be out there, probably small movement of speaking or uh, having an analytical hour or a therapeutic hour where you discuss great works, great classical works. Yeah. And it could be anything, right? It could be a novel that has affected you. It doesn't have to be in the canon or whatever that even means anymore. But uh, it, to me, the, the writers that most impacted me personally were 19th century Russians, specifically Dostoevsky. I just have this, this incredibly intense relationship with Dostoevsky. And I, I do think that the reason that I can still read them today is because he's speaking about things that are not located in time. You know, they're, they're, they transcend that and they speak yeah. to the larger human issues. And I think, again, I'm, I'm probably, because I found such great people to actually want to discuss this. Now, what do you think about this? I really do think there's a hunger for this, but to go a little bit deeper, I, I think there is. That's why people follow my Instagram account. I mean, I'm not posting happy, happy things. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm posting, you know, people who are challenging this to, to take ownership for stuff. So there must be a thirst for it, you know? I hope so. I mean, huh, I, yeah. you know, like I, I certainly hope so. I feel like there is. 
I got a, like one really solid example is that I, I lead a now a couple of men's groups. And when I read the description of what the men's group is, most men are like, yep, before I'm finished. And it's all about this. It's like, hey, we have yeah. stuff that we show the world and we have stuff in our private lives. We come together to work on what's going on in our outer life, what's happening in our inner life, and then what happens amongst us when we're in relationship with people as they're being vulnerable and defensive and shitty and judgmental and yep. whatever we do. And the the desire to find out what's underneath, I think, is so inherent. Yeah. And I, like that, I think, is that shadow function. What I mean, what do you think? What do you think about it? Like, because you come at this from a different way than I have with regard to the clinical dynamic we right. were talking about before. Right. So speak to right. that for a moment about your literature world. Well, okay. So years back, I was part of a program called Classic Pursuits, which is one out of Toronto, fabulous program. And, and they do something that is just beautiful. Every year they have a program at the University of Toronto and you have 10 different seminars. Somebody's, you know, learning about Wagner's ring cycle in one. Yeah. The other one's doing Tolstoy. I taught a couple on uh, uh, Joseph Campbell and, and, and it's not really teaching. They're using the great books method from uh, St. John's University. In other words, what they're using is uh, the Socratic a method mm -hmm. to elicit. So, you know, all these people are, you know, they've had careers, they're coming out here. In fact, one of the, my favorite members was a, a guy who was a Benedictine monk who came from California. He had great, great observations. So you get a collection of people, adults, who uh, want to have these kinds of conversations, and then you give them different material. Everybody's sort of in these different seminar rooms. Um, and then you get together at lunch and you discuss, you know, what's been going on in each other's uh, spaces. And then the afternoon there were talks, and then the evening there's the dinner beautiful and part of that program um uh, which is my favorite part allowed us to take people to study different writers in country so my first trip that i led was to study Lorca in seville oh. which is where you should which was really rough <laughs> i remember my kids were really young and i'm sitting in, in in a courtyard in seville in the old quarter drinking a glass of wine discussing Lorca and thinking oh i don't really feel guilty <laughs> about leaving them behind i mean I'm a, i was a very dedicated mother but i needed that kind of thing but it was just it was just so beautiful, you know, these these people who took 10 days, you know, out of their time to come and specifically join a group where you were reading Lorca, you were discussing, there is no sage on the stage, they were all discussing as adults, what does this mean? It was fabulous. And so from there, I did a Juan Rulfo in Mexico, and I did a couple to my part of Spengalifia to look at St. John of the Cross and, and a whole bunch of other uh, uh, mystics, because my part of Spain is where Santiago the Compostela is, which is where the pilgrimage ends. So it allows you some sort of leeway. But it, it just, it was such... Wow an incredibly intense experience. And in fact, we're trying to recreate it again with my group, but then using some of the texts we're talking about um, and, you know, going off to places that we're connected to. I'm from, yeah, I have a connection to Spain. Someone has a connection to Italy, you know, uh, but it's the idea that you're somebody, you, you leave your space and you're suddenly in this other space, right? Where there's nothing really to hang on to. You're not worrying about everyday things and you're sort of immersing yourself in poetry. I mean, how can this not? And I, you know, I, I realize this is not something that would appeal to all. I mean, I'm, I'm being realistic here. However, the conversations that come there, and the conversations are not particularly the ones that are interesting, are not particularly the ones that happen during the the conversation about Lorca. Yeah. It's what happens after when you're having a glass of wine, you relax, yes. and there's a guitarist, and somebody says that's something, and you turn around, and you go, wow, never, I never quite thought about that. It, it's just, it's honestly, these are the experiences that are so healing in ways that are not. Um, you know, they're very immersive and you and you kind of miss it once it's over. You, you and it, people say, well, it's a, it, it, with the U of T program, the University of Toronto program, all oh, it seems very elitist, Wagner, you know, Bach. 
And it's like, no, because at the end of the day, the people that are attracted to these uh, seminars are people who are engaged with learning. You know, they're just they're lifelong learners. They just want to keep doing it. And they haven't found a place to discuss these things in the regular world. If you go back to university and you could take courses, it's still not quite the same thing. I think what distinguishes that is, first, it's very immersed uh, for one week. But secondly, you're talking to people who've lived kind of a life, who've... Uh, who've uh, kind of wandered around, who maybe have closed out careers, who've had children, um, who decided not to, who are monks. I mean, it's a, it's a collection of everything. And um, and so you're also learning from their experience. And that's why you don't want to hire academics, particularly to lead these kinds of things, mm -hmm. because what we'll turn to is like, oh, you know, da-da-da-da-da. It's more like about the conversation and how can you lead. And the best leaders, as you know, in a conversation elicit like ask the questions that elicit information from the person so they understand what they're thinking about. Because that's the thing. The reason you write is to understand what you think. So for me, that novel was, I don't even understand what I'm thinking, even though I'm studying this for the last, not studying, but reading about this and leading a group for the last 15 years. But to put it down in that podcast format that I created was a way for me to understand, well, what, what, what do I really understand this material or how am I understanding this material? You know, and it could be that I'm understanding it incorrectly, according to some, it didn't matter. It was my conversation with myself, ultimately, you know. And so, yeah, so I, I'm a great believer that there's a lot around us that we could be using. And we use it with kids' stories. You could be telling your children's stories, and I'm sure you probably do, with the fairy tales and whatever stories are out there. You, you know what I used to do with my kids when they were young? <clears throat> I would tell them the ring cycle story, which is quite ridiculous. It's a 17-hour opera. In fact, I, I once sat them in front of the first 20 minutes, <laughs> but they got into it. And I'll tell you why. I realized, well, how can I tell this story? First of all, that you know, they were studying piano, so I hit that E, that low E flat that starts the whole ring cycle, and I start telling them, you know, about this uh, uh, this this uh, dwarf who's been rejected by these wine maidens, and I, you know, I would ask some questions like, well, why do you think he gets so angry? Well, because he's sad, and it's like putting these things together. Anyway, they were mesmerized just by hearing this story, which is, of course, I only told them Rheingold's story. I didn't get into the uh, the other three, but it was just interesting. I thought, wow, if you can tell. And I pointed out the music. And in fact, I was invited to their school and I told the story and I told them this, this is the sound of the, the world coming to being E flat. I played that that first uh, 33 bars of the wing cycle. And then I played them a recording of the sound, uh, I think from Harvard that they have of, you know, the kind of heartbeat of the universe. And I told them these are two ways of telling stories. They're stories. One is grounded in, in scientific fact, which is fabulous and we need it. But let's not forget there's another story we can hear. And there are many variations on that theme. And they they bring you, and of course, little kids love stories as soon as you tell them there. But I was just so amazed at the engagement. These are like first graders. And they were just so interested in this. And so the way you tell a story is important. And, and I think just the idea that that is the best way to convey information. I mean, I wouldn't be, I tried writing a nonfiction book for years and I couldn't get it going. I just could not do it. I would lapse into this weird, you know, poetic, it did not work. And when I when I thought about it later, I couldn't really write a straight nonfiction, but there are, of course, nonfiction elements about what I'm writing in, in this particular book. But it was mm -hmm. easier told as a story, you know. You got in, You got your opportunity in this book. This was, this. Yeah. I loved, I thought it was, well, let's set the book up for a minute. Okay. I mean, because let's even back up further than that. I'm curious about how you found Jung and what that means to you. And then if we could follow that thread to the Red Book and this, this, yeah. I mean, you, you had, that's what I was sitting, I sat there with my wife and I was like, this is an, this is active imagination. This is what Bay is yeah, doing is like an active imagination. It was radical. I really enjoyed it. So let's set all that up and then we'll see okay. where we go. 
Jung. Oh my God, I found Jung uh, when I was a graduate student through the work of a, a woman called Liz Green. Do you know her? She's a, a Jungian. Okay, so she's I, a I don't Jungian. know her personally, but I know her. Oh, no, no, no. I would love to know her personally. She is one, one heck of a powerhouse in so many ways. So she was writing about uh, psychological astrology. So there I am in my 20s. And I was like, oh, this is so fascinating. But then I thought what was really fascinating is like Jung, who's this Jung guy, right? And she led me to Jung. And you know, she's written those two books on Jung and astrology. She was the only mm -hmm. person that was allowed into the archives by his family. Um, and but but she's just particularly good at conveying information. But what I was really interested in was his theories. And so from her, I went into I kind of a lot of people do this. I didn't quite want to read Jung yet because I was intimidated. So I went through all the other people. So here's the thing. I am in the city that publishes uh, inner city books that the publisher is, which publishes all these incredible Jungian analysts. Yes. I probably own a hundred of their of their books. I just mm -hmm. went one, one. And then, of course, I started reading Jung, and I thought, this isn't a hard person to read. This is <laughs> actually it's pretty clear in many ways. And then this was before the, the Red Book actually uh, came online. And then, of course, I read that and thought, oh, my Lord, this is this is where I recognize the novel to be. And I think <clears throat> the thing is that, okay, let's get away from genre fiction and all that. I mean, that is very structured and whatever. But I think a lot of uh, writers, uh, fiction writers, have this feeling of being invaded by something. And that's exactly how I felt. And I thought, mm. when I read about his mm. experience, that's what he described it. It's almost like he was invaded by these characters. So the characters were him. And he knew that. He recognized that. And this is where I always say to people, don't confuse the characters that people are writing in a true novel with people they know. It has right. nothing to do with people they know. It's people, internal people, right? Just getting right. back to that point. And so, yeah, so that was basically the the, the start with Liz Green right on to... Um, to uh to today where i still keep reading like i just read gary sparks book like i told you and it's never ending and and i don't know i'm gonna ask you this because i've noticed, noticed this in your podcast do you think that people like you, you and me we're just like seekers and we can't stop searching like this is part of what i'm worried about <laughs> i keep going down this path like i'm right now into archaeoastronomy this is my new um wow obsession. I just love it. By the way, if you haven't hit that, you're going to lose yourself and never come back. So um, there's a guy out of Spain in, in Tenerife who is really, this is a pretty new field because to be able to be really good at this, you have to understand mythology. You have to understand archaeology. You have to understand astronomy. And so you can't get too many people who are actually that that great. But there is one out of the uh, University of Tenerife. And I have had this theory in my head. I'm in love with the living sky. I always have been. I think there's something about the, but I, I'm in love with it because that is where we projected all of our, mm -hmm. our stuff, right? I mean, that's the original mother mythology. I'm convinced about it more and more. And so archaeoastronomy is is one of these things that's, that's connecting things. And part of what I think is really sad, having lived in London and next to the British Museum, there are so many tablets that are untranslated sitting in that in that Assyrian tablets that were sitting in that place and other places. But we have a lot more people coming online learning the classical languages. I know you will you will totally relate to this um, and starting to translate these texts. And the more you translate these texts, the more you realize that something really, really radical happened uh, at about 300 BCE. All right. Mm -hmm. And I know you're following a lot of these trains through other means, and it all is does link to a certain degree with people experimenting with, um, you know, whatever psychoactive uh, uh, how would you call them psychoactive uh things that were in the in the area sure. we call them drugs compounds drugs. substance yeah, sacraments yeah. whatever yeah. all of a sudden i had like a brain it's like what are they called <laughs> anyway uh but that's really not the issue the issue was actually a measurement issue around 200 bce hipparchus figures out the procession the rate of procession and this is huge uh, because what it means, and this is involved with the Mithraic cult, and I don't want to get too much into it because this is what my second book's about. 
Danny takes over the uh, story and goes to the Warburg Institute in London, basically chasing down this story. But what, what it basically points to is that the revelation that the sky is literally moving because at the equinox, at the at the uh, uh, spring equinox, where people start track, tracking the solar year, that changes one degree every 72 years. So that the sky that people were looking at in the spring and zero degree, zero year, you know, compared to now is totally different. All right. Uh, is is was quite shocking because it meant if the gods were in the sky, what the heck is moving the sky? What superior god is doing it? So a lot of the mythologies is act, are actually related to that. So a lot of our stories, and I hit on this weird, mm. I don't know if this happens to you, I read so much that sometimes I hit on these little clues that you're really thinking, okay, can I follow it? And I'm, this is the one I'm following. I'm in love and love and love with the, the story Parsifal. And it, there, there's uh, somebody referenced that this this original story that Essenbach and others based their myth on came out of a Catalan um, or northern Spain out of an alchemist. And, you know, alchemy was very big in Spain because that's where you had this incredible mix of cultures for a period of yeah. time, you know, which is unfortunately uh, done in by the Catholic kings in 1492. But part of that, you've got this incredible mixing and you've got all the Arabic texts have come through there. They're being translated. It is like the one part of Europe in the Middle Ages that is still thriving. And um, anyway, this story seems to be linked to one particular alchemist called Kiat, so I'm chasing him down, which of course is what Danny's going to chase down, because this is my my thing. If I could justify all this time I'm spending, you know, chasing down leads that could actually, by the way, lead nowhere. But the process is what's really interesting here. I'm just sort of interested in the, the whole notion, because I'm so in love with mythology, is it possible that all of our mythologies are variations on a theme that's all been in the sky all the time? Because if you think about it, that's what they were looking at all the time. And we all have the sky above. It doesn't matter if you're here or there. Now, Joseph Campbell does make this argument in some of his um, work. But I'm just having fun with the archaeoastronomers and saying, well, what are they what are they finding out? Because you do, you're getting and this is one great thing I've seen in academia that didn't exist when I was doing uh, my graduate work. The idea of interdisciplinary work is becoming mm. so much more accepted, you know, and mm. it's so necessary because you can't do this work unless you have skills, a skill set that kind of crosses over along five different lines. So, yeah, so that's what I'm facing right now. And I just I was thinking, but then I thought I got to ask John, do you not feel like you're searching, searching, searching? And you're going to get to the end and you really wouldn't have found anything, but you would have thought, wow, that was a great life because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had a fun time doing it. You know? Yeah. If you can release the need to discover yeah, yeah, but to absolutely. be in the process, I, I, uh, Jeff Kripal said something to me once yeah. where he said, "He said it's a lot more fun this way, isn't it?" Oh yeah, it I said, is. Yeah, I agree. it is. It's a lot more fun. I don't understand people who watch so much Netflix, really, honestly, because I spend most of my time like chasing down these crazy, uh, I, you know, academia. You, for example, you've, you, edu, you get all these great uh, people downloading their papers you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Yeah. And sometimes you'll be, I am so thankful for the generosity because you will be able to find. It's almost like it's a puzzle, and you're just trying to, you're just trying to follow a lead, yeah. right? And uh, so I, that's what I love. I just love doing that kind of search. I don't know where it's leading, but I do find that the actual process is just fantastic. And so, yeah, so this is where I don't even know what, what was the original question you asked before I forgot. Before I, I, but it, it just, to me, even just listening to you, it, what, we're, what we're talking about is the seat of your creativity. And to be in that creative space, I think, is... And it'll look different for anybody, but but yeah. uh, the essence of evolution, the essence of the, the the divine, you know, the creative essence of the potential, creative potential of existence, that when we're in that Tao, uh, right. 
nothing better. You know, my soul and my body and my spirit all sing out that this is the this is the path. Not everybody's right. path, but certainly mine. No. And I can tell it's no. yours. Yeah, it's definitely mine. <laughs> so tell me something. If you're telling people, and this is a question I ask my group, okay? If you are telling people, read Jung, you say, okay, start with the collected works. So do you start with the red book or now the black books? But let's go to the red book. What, what would you tell people? I, I Well, like what you were saying, I mean, so... Here, yeah, full disclosure, I am like Parsifal, I am a fool. And oh, I, 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 started, I started a doctorate in Jungian psychology having never read Jung at all. Okay. Like wow. I just went head first and it was a little insane. I was the, one of the youngest people in my cohort right. and mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew is that when I started reading Jung, my, my first exposure to Jung was Symbols of Transformation, book number five. Okay. Right. And it blew my head off. I, I was totally intimidated, totally like, oh, my God, I can't pronounce these words. I don't understand who is this reference he's making. Yeah. And I called my friend Sean and I was like, this is crazy. I've bit <laughs> off way more than I, he's like, can't calm down. You know, and then like what you said, you know, you start getting into the mix. And now that I've uh, been exposed to like a percent of a percent of Greek, reading Jung now is very different because I have access yeah, I to those different language systems. Yeah. Um, but I personally, uh, I, the Red Book to me seems like one of the most important books that I've ever read. And mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a good example of all the things that happen in the clinical, uh, the collected works. Um, but I tend to recommend other folks. I tend to recommend James Hollis, or I tend yeah. to recommend um, any number of other um, interlocutors to that space. Because I find that most people who don't share the kind of curiosity and interest that we have, they even read Jim Hollis and they go, holy, what is this guy? Like, this is insane. Yeah. yeah. And I just stick with I, it. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, I, I sometimes get an aggressive person coming on on Twitter or Instagram saying, why are you quoting about people quoting young? Why don't you just quote young? And I say exactly what you just said. A lot yeah. of people do not want to or are not ready for Young or find some of his language difficult or yeah. sometimes even offensive. Um, I think uh, the the most quoted person on my feeds is James Hollis. I have all of his books. I, I think the man is is he's amazing. He is the only person I brought to Toronto, by the way, back in 2010. I brought him to work with my group for a weekend, and wow. he gave a talk at the University of Toronto. And it just what a gentle person. You, know, you can really. Yeah tell a person is always who he is, you know, yeah. um, and he's so helpful. And I remember he at dinner, he said, you know, I, I don't like doing this. I don't like doing these public things, but I feel it's necessary because he's an introvert, you know, and he's yeah. so good at it. Um, but uh, boy, are we thankful he's willing to do that, you know, and he was, he was maybe 72, 73 at the time. And, you know, the amount of energy he spent just getting on planes and talking to groups like mine, you know, it was, uh, it was incredible. So yes, I, I, I quote him. Some people think he's negative. I, I disagree. I think what he's really telling you is, listen, grow up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You do have to take responsibility. If you don't want to hear that, that's fine. Um, yeah, no, he, and, and he's also, I guess, because of his literature background. So this is where he connects very much to me. He's always bringing in works mm -hmm. that, that are just, to me, are great examples. Not only of his, you know, he'll also give you clinical uh, stories, but I really think he knows how to use literature in a, in a very good way and by bringing in, you know, a quote from an, uh, a, a poet here or a writer, and he actually takes you back to some works, right, that you want to go to. So uh, so he is by far the one that I recommend most. The other one I recommend quite a bit is because he's so easy to read, and some people find him so easy that they get, but I, but I think he's important because of that is Robert A. Johnson. Of course, he's just yeah. the easiest person, and he's great Agreed. with myth. 
Uh, I will recommend one thing. I don't know if you've listened. It was quite an eye-opening uh, interchange. He did a 10-hour um, interview with Marion Woodman. Have you ever heard this? Yes. So, uh, yeah, and I thought that was really revealing. It was really kind of flushed out Robert A. Johnson in a way for me that uh, it made me understand a lot of his work, too. But he's another one just because I feel, yeah, if you want to enter the Jungian world, you can't. You have to make sure you enter through ways that at least explain the basic concepts. And then you're going to interview Connie Swag and have. Um, I think her, the book she edited, Meeting the Shadow, is absolutely yes. a book everybody should have on their right. shelf. Don't you think? Yes, agreed. Like, absolutely. Totally agreed. Yeah. And I've recommended it so many times. It's ridiculous. But the other thing about Meeting the Shadow, and that's part of a series of books. I have a whole bunch of them that, that are put together by the same uh, company um, or publishing house. They, they um, give you a taste of some of the writers, right? And so you can follow some. Some James Holman is in that one, for yep. example. Uh, Marie-Louise von Franz, who, by the way, is my hero. <laughs> Personally, von Franz is like, if I had a dream of meeting someone that could be and talk to me, von Franz would be absolutely it. Above even Jung, I have to say. I just find her so fascinating. Um, anyway, you get a taste of these people, and then you decide, okay, I'm going to follow this one for a while. Like, this is what Joseph Campbell really taught well, that keep following the footnotes, keep following the people that I uh, never skip footnotes because <laughs> in there, there's a lot of stuff, right? Don't you think? Or you're outing, you're outing secrets here. Like that's, that's how I follow. The, well, that's yeah. this podcast, quite frankly. I, I, yeah. I read somebody and follow the footnote. Then I go yeah, to yeah. Like, call them and who are you reading? Like totally. Yes. Follow the footnotes. I, I love that. I don't understand why people skip them. It's like, keep <laughs> reading. Um, this is really where it's all at. Uh, anyway, so that that is that that is basically. Now the other thing that really interests me, I don't know if you've been following this whole thing with um, the memories, dream, reflections, and Sonasham Dasani, the editor of the Red yes. Book, saying that uh, uh, we need a new version because she edited Aniela uh, Jaffe. Have you heard this? Because that's I, really interesting to me. I could have intuited that on some level because I, okay. I, I've I've just been around the conversations before and her the way she her treatment I, I don't know good bad and different whatever but i just felt a little bit of that that was a weird yeah. deal yeah okay it's interesting yeah well i mean his his point i like the way he put it because he's he's uh actually sodasham Dasani, bizarrely enough was at the welcome institute for the history of medicine at the same time i was doing my my phd that i had no idea that there was a young program going on every time i think about it wow. but anyway um he called it the antification of uh of um of Jung, what she did. In other words, by making him palatable and making it. Mm. And so I'd be really interested. I think they're going to release the the full thing. Or I think it's maybe been released already. I'm not sure. But that really fascinates me because, yeah, like, I mean, Jung is huh. you know, you a pretty complicated life. And, uh, yeah. um, and but, yes. but, but I have to say, I, yes, I know. A lot of people to say it lightly, yes. That. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's this thing that the family and families do this all the time. I get it. You know, after they've died, you want to protect their, you know, you want to be an empiricist. You want to be seen flaky. But in fact, I don't know what your view is, but those last three works are monumental. They're, they're, oh, there's yeah. where you get young. They're they're amazing. And yeah, they're going to challenge you. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not going to not going to read eye on and think, OK, this person, what what is he saying? Or answer to Job, you know. But they're so powerful. Oh, Mister, and forget that one. Most people just bleep over it. I actually heard two academics talking about this. You'll appreciate this. And they got to Ion. And uh, somebody talked about the procession of the equinoxes because he talks yeah. about that, the ages. And the guy said, oh, yeah, let's not talk about that. That's just that, that, that's just nonsense. And I thought, let's not talk about that. Why do you think someone would have written about it? Isn't it intellectual dishonesty not to address what's in the book? But that's what I think I find really interesting about him. He just makes people uncomfortable. Um, and especially if you are wanting to find the young that is your young, right? This is my young. He's an empiricist. Don't talk about that other stuff. The mystics get all worked up. Like, I don't know if you follow the Peter Kingsley. Um, oh, sure. 
line of it, okay? Uh, he gets all worked up about Edinger and starts attacking all the other, because he didn't see that that Jung was a real mystic. And I'm thinking, you know what? It's not, I can't believe you're all Jungians. It's not either or. Yeah. It is possible, like every human being, that he is messed up about this, which is actually what you see in the Red Book, right? Um, and to dishonor the whole person by saying this part is more important, uh, you're just saying what you find more important, which is fine, right? But it's not him. So yeah, the more information that's released, I think the better, uh, absolutely, for, for people just to get their own sense. And also, I mean, you know, he's not a cult leader, right? But whatever, he's, he's a person who thought very deeply about stuff, but there's been other people after him and we keep reading and we keep running, you know? Well, that, that actually provides a good answer. This question, why Jung? You know, you've, you've been exposed yeah. to all kinds of literature and why yeah. Jung, you know? You're, you're talking about a figure that provides an inroad, no matter what your typology is. Um, yep. And and that goes to your book, and I want to set that up for a moment because what we were talking about earlier is this active imagination, this um, this process you got into, which was a conversation between, one could say, the a scientific reductionist approach and a kind yeah. of mythic, very feminine orientation yeah. that that mm-hmm. um, grounds herself in story and in myth. And uh, so speak about that because I'm really interested about your process by doing that. So I think that that novel really is exemplifying or showing you that there is a conflict in me between those two. Like, uh, there's a lot of second guessing. I'm in love with a lot of these mythologies. I'm not in love with the divinatory part because I find that that's, that's something that challenges more of the, mm-hmm. you know, the McGilchrist model, the right, the whole mm-hmm. versus the parts. Mm-hmm. But I think both are necessary, right? And I think what's not happening is you're not get, having a conversation where in yourself we're including both. So I always kind of check myself when I'm reacting too strongly towards the story that somebody says it sounds improbable because my, my you know, the Alberto part of me will say, stop, that's insane. But then I say, no, no, let's, let's entertain let's be open to what's going on right because that's really important for me and so but it's but i realized that that person's uh, voice that masculine voice which i felt i had to represent as masculine because that's how it feels to me is always there checking and it's an important voice i'm not trying to get rid of it and by the way i absolutely love a lot of stuff being published in neuroscience cognitive science my son did his degree here at the university of toronto in cognitive science it's it's fascinating stuff but it can be very reductionist right it can be And so to me, it's like, I want to know, because I think the brain's fascinating, but I would also like to know this. So we go again to my favorite thing that I think the Jungians say, which is don't get stuck in the either or, because Mm -hmm. I think that's where you get into into big problems. So for me, it was like, okay, so my first two novels, I had to kill off a young masculine. And this is interesting. I thought, why did I need to kill? I mean, they were dramatic. One of them was based on, it was trying to be an opera. Okay, so you could understand, but why the young male? Why do they both end up dying at the end? Um, and I and I and I worked with that for years. I thought, what is there a part of me that doesn't, you know, because I consider these kind of psychoanalytical trips for my for myself. And um, so when I went to write this and the whole thing story downloaded, I thought, okay, well, you know, <laughs> I had this voice coming and going, should I kill him off? <laughs> and then, I, which is nobody does, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, well, but then I thought, no, let it happen how it's meant to happen. And, yeah. Okay, so here here's an interesting thing about the feminine. I consider that I work a lot in the feminine sphere, but I had a real um, the, the kind of disdain for love stories, right? Because I thought, ah, what a, what a waste of time. All these things, these people wasting their time doing this. And then I, it's almost like my own psyche forced me to write what I was disdaining, which is really ticking me off. And by the way, let me be quite honest about this. Why I resisted writing it 
uh, so long was because it was a love story. And I just couldn't stand the idea that I was going to work in something. And then I kind of sat with myself and I said, well, why? What, what's going on here? I'll just see what happens. And and then I thought, well, isn't a love story really at the end of the at the end of the day for me anyway? It's the bringing together of parts of yourself, right? Uh, in the world, right. we do it through, you know, straight narrative. But in this case, it is the idea that can I bring these two kind of at odds in my case, maybe in some other people, they have more integration. I seem to not have it. Can I bring these two together in a way that they can have a conversation without, you know, needing to, to feel threatened? And mm. and so that was really the genesis of the whole thing. But I have to say, I had great resistance because I thought, oh, this is, this is silly. It's beneath me. And then I thought, oh, this is, no, what's really beneath you is this silly attitude you have. Like it occurred to me that I was just being crazy. Um, and so it was a really good process to work out within me, you know, just to get real about what just... my resistance is. For the record, it, it, it we're, we're going to be like Jungians for a second. It okay. it reminds me of the my favorite story in the Red Book is the castle in the forest. And oh yeah, me too. Oh literally about this. <laughs> it's literally about this. I know. I know when I read it, I thought I, I thought about that recently. I thought, wait a minute, because he's so embarrassed that he's creating a cheap romance. Yeah, cheap romance novel. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess, and and you know, what is that a sign of? His intellectual side coming in, coming totally. in, and, and you know, not allowing the relational because this is really about relations so all the my two-part novels the relationships are a mess i mean everybody's just nothing ends up well and i thought okay well this can't be good right yeah, well, looking at it from my <laughs> the psychoanalyst <laughs> let me scratch my beard which is weird because you know in the outer world i have the, the relationships are all quite fine but it, they, they, there's inner yeah. clearly inner turmoil right and so yeah so the 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 implication came from that it's that i that notion and then i had been reading marcelo Piccino. And the idea that you can, I don't know if you know Marcelo Ficino as the great Renaissance thinker, just been to to Florence. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I go to a place, I just become obsessed with that place and start reading about the Medici's and their translation work. Wow. And, and can I tell you the best story? I'm sure you know this story. And if you don't know the story, this is the one I want to see on film. Um, it's about how the, the Medici start uh, trying to get all the manuscripts that are sitting in, in these uh, monasteries. Now, of course, I'm a book lover, so this just appeals to me, the idea that mm -hmm. there's these um, scrolls that everybody wants to translate. They wonder what's going on. So he has a book scout called Leonardo. Leonardo's going around all the European... Um, monasteries trying to find what's there and then bringing it back to Marsilio Ficino, who is the translator and who is who's basically who Medici has has uh, hired to do this work. Anyway, the uh, Constantinople Falls and all those documents from the Eastern Church end up in Greece. So Leonardo shows up in one of the monasteries and finds there is a uh, copy of the Corpus Hermeticum. And he just Ooh. realizes, oh, my God, this is what he wants. So he gets I just Imagine this cinematically, getting on a horse, getting the hell back to Florence, because by yes. this point, Medici is, the Medici Cosimo is quite old. And he arrives and Cosimo de Medici says, you know, uh, Marsilio, get rid of everything you're translating, you're yeah, translating this. this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking, what a great scene. And so yeah. what was we just, this is how the world disappoints me, John, let me tell you. So, um, the Netflix, they do, the Netflix does a series on the Medici's, okay? What do they focus on? Their stupid relationships, which you can't even verify. Wouldn't it be great to see this kind of excitement yeah. about, I mean, maybe you can't, I think cinematically seeing a guy grab a, a document going back, but I, this is where we're at, right? People are not quite interested in, in in this sort of thing. But to me, it's like, wow, what a great moment. You find something that to me is like bigger than a jewel, right? You're bringing it back and you're looking for secrets and he translates it. And yes, Dimitri was able to read it before he died. And just what so of all know. of the listeners are aware of this, we're talking about one of the like foundational storylines yeah. in esoteric philosophy. 
Like Absolutely. this is a very rich territory it. here. This is yeah. It. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the area I'm going now um, really locates me a lot in the first century in Alexandria. Yeah. I am totally obsessed with Alexandria. I would love to see more about that period. I mean, what was going on there in terms of the, the, the um, connection between cultures and oh, sharing of knowledge? I'm Isn't with that... you. Yes. Oh, I'm totally with you. So much I'm... more. You know? Walter Hanegraaff's work on this subject is consistently blowing my mind. Okay, well, you got to actually send me that because I want to read it. I'm well, his, totally I'll tell you, his book period. is one yeah. of those that's um, yeah. that's really expensive. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we were talking about that earlier. Um, yeah. But it's one of the it's one of my favorite books I've read uh, in a while. Like he's he's yeah. on the he's got the he's the chair at at, at Amsterdam University of Amsterdam in the okay. College of Esotericism and Hermeticism. Oh. And like, I can guy tell you, Walter okay. yeah, no, give me the name. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so good. Yeah. And I interviewed yeah. him. So he's like, he's set up maybe, I forget what number it was, but the 80 something uh, in the okay, podcast. Okay, I will go back, yeah. yeah. So good. Um, okay. But that, if you're on the track, he begins I his am. book in Alexandria in first century, okay. talking about cult wow. religions and the esoteric traditions that were born out of so this. Cool. So this is a great day. So cool. Do you listen to um, Earl Fontenelle's podcast, Schwepp? No. No, yeah. I got it. Should I? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You should. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, for anybody out there, I'm on. I'm on track. This guy doesn't know it, but I'm going to be reaching out to him soon to interview okay. <laughs> him. Uh, the Secret History of Western es Western Esotericism podcast. Right. Schwepp. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. I Absolutely. will support I your to. path here. <laughs> yeah, great. I love it. I yes. spend more time than I already do. The yeah. one thing is I, I, I listen to everything at twice the speed so I can get through stuff yeah, very fast, quickly. It's like, fast, oh, yes. Yeah, go, go. Well, we can, you can't get it all in if you don't. Yeah, that period is absolutely fascinating to me. And, and I can see why you would be interested in learning ancient well, languages. Because that's, the connection uh, yeah, that. you see the, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a class tonight, actually. It's my first class at the Young Center on, um, uh, I call it the Promethean vision uh, and the the idea of psychedelics, uh, religion, therapy, you know, what what's happening, myth, you know, what's going on right. in all these spaces that yeah, yeah. psychedelics are a small part, but it, it's, yeah. a, it's a it's 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 the part that we haven't been able to talk about so openly because of the shadow dynamic that was created in certainly the 70s in the United States yeah. that that really corrupted that process. Yeah. But I want to I want to jump into something that you mentioned, yeah. because um, I would love for you to free associate for a while on masculine, feminine, what right. is going on here, because your book really does take these parallels between the masculine, the scientific, right. the reductive, the the right. discerning and the feminine, the receptive. Right. So talk about that and just what you've learned from your literature and whatnot. Oh, from learning that. It's funny, what I'm learning, unfortunately, is a lot more what I'm seeing online in the online wars, and that I think often you can actually analyze it from that perspective, that the relational capacity goes missing, right? Um, and, and often I find people, again, we get to that reductionist stance, and this links to McGilchrist's work. This is why I respect Ian McGilchrist. Uh, He's going to be on in September. Yeah, I'm, he, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm so glad to hear that. He is yeah. fantastic. The Master in His Emissary. He's, uh, we, taught, we also exchanged a little bit about him. He, I think, is probably the most one of the most important thinkers to me in the last 20 years. I really believe right this. Uh, well, because I think what he's done, because he had a background in literature, <laughs> obviously, I seem to really just <laughs> enjoy <a> people's <laughs> backgrounds. I just put it there. So he got a PhD in, at Oxford in literature, and then he becomes a, a psychiatrist. Um, really led again, and I think there's a thing, we all belong to a tribe of uh, who are just curious, people that really want to find out answers to things. He had attended a lecture, as you know, and then, on this business of brain lateralization. And then he puts together this mammoth 
but yeah. there's something that makes so much sense. And he was in one of his interviews. He said, I don't, he noted that Jungians were very much into his work and he didn't quite know why, because it's not like he's going around quoting Jung. But I think it's because he's actually identified and he doesn't want to talk about masculine and feminine. And here we get to the first problem. And I don't know what you think about this, but the words kind of confuse things because there are plenty of men who are feminine and there are plenty of women who are demonstrating more of the masculine, but those two words get immediately assigned to gender and we merely have a problem, right? Well, because, you know, they get, they, they get assigned to genitals. Like that's the, yeah, that's, that's what, yeah. 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 And, it, and it's despairing to me because it, it, it denies, you know, uh, it just it, to me, it just it's a complete. And again, we get trapped by words. Well, that to me tracks very well with McGilchrist. And what are you yeah. saying? That the left brain is tracking you in categories because that's what it does very well. We need categories. You know, I, I love science, but you need to be able to integrate something. So to me, I think what he's been able to put uh, words to and research mm. to is a masculine or feminine, but mm -hmm. you can't call it that and he will deny it because he's mis mixing up. I think he's caught up in his own categories. He's mm -hmm. mixing up those two words and assigning them again to what, exactly what you said, genitals, and it's nothing to do with that. Um, if you look at the definition that he says, then he will say, well, women, you know, they, uh, they have, uh, I think he said this before, women have... Um, their left brain more developed in some ways, their left prefrontal cortex. That may be true, but I'm talking about the categories because we're not talking about women. Uh, the, if the left, if the right brain is the whole and sees the whole and integrates, right? That seems to me to map pretty well with what uh, Jung thought the feminine was, right? That is where everything emerges from. The masculine maps very well to the discerning side. You have to take things out of the unconscious. You have to divide them. We'll say that the right is more about integration. It sees the whole, the left, the left sees the parts. You need yes, both. Yes. Okay? Yeah, you need both. Yeah. But the problem is, and I think everybody skips this step, when you bring something out from the right, and think about this in the unconscious conscious model that Jung uses, and you separate it, right? You have to reintegrate it. It has to go back to the right. But if the left brain can't see the right, then it thinks it's the whole show. Yeah. And so we're stopping at that. And I think that's the illness. He's, he's actually shown it perfectly. I mean, I think, but he's giving you the whole, he's giving you, he's giving you the, the, what we need, which is the scientific, uh, um, basis to to form this argument yeah. which i think jung had less uh, so i think he's speaking about the same thing this is only my uh, idea and i think this is why jungians really attracted to him but even jungians get caught up and i don't know if you're finding this but i find it a little bit despairing even jungians get caught up in these two words and start speaking about them as not and i hate the word energy but just things that exist okay outside because you know energy then gets reduced to something else but you know what i mean things that belong to both of us right to all of us and that we're all expressing in different quantities, right? So I can say that as a young woman, I can tell you it was much more masculine in the sense of how you would define that. It was very linear, uh, academic. Uh, everything was about getting to a certain spot, you know? Uh, and as I've grown older, I've gone back into more into the feminine side. But it's always been a war. It's always been a war in me. And I recognize it's something I have to work on all the yeah. time. And I realize that into that is actually brought together in some way that you're actually not whole. It's such a fundamental part of the work and difficult. And totally difficult because it's not supported. He, who's supporting this in terms of the society even recognizing that this is something that is going on? Well, I mean, most people will say, oh, prove it to me. <laughs> these archetypes exist. It's like, okay, it's over. Because you can't talk about these things in quite the way that they want to be talked to yes. uh, or talked about. So, yeah, to me, it's a central central issue of our time. Um, I, I think that both the masculine and the feminine needs each other. So when somebody says, well, this is all 
uh, like I, the, the fact that, you know, we, there, there are groups, and I think you see this in the UH community, it kind of drives me crazy, which is all about light and, and uh, the, the connection of things. But you also need the sword. I mean, at times you need to be able to distinguish what is right from what is wrong in a certain category or what belongs to one thing or what belongs to the other, right? You can't you cannot have the other side. If you don't, you get into problems. And then you get to what I think is makes it so powerful for me, uh, Jung so powerful for me, which is can you hold those two things together yes. at the same time? That's as hard. That's that's like, and you know, because I'm sure it's happened to you or that happens to me all the time. I go, oh, I really want to go this way. And you go, no, 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 that's too extreme. And you know it, but you, you know, the tendency is to make an enemy of something so you can categorize yeah. it and take out a sword and cut off its head. That's what we do. Well, what yeah, I like I about what you're saying is that you, uh, if we could say we've all got a war inside of us yeah, and we will tend to pick the enemy out there to play mm -hmm. that war out with. Um, right. And part of the work is about recollecting what we've allowed f to exist outside of ourselves, right. which is why this work, I think, to our, our point earlier about reading Jung, why this is so difficult on a deeper level is that it really does take holding the tension between the dynamics in yourself that, that get right. played out yeah. in the outer world. Yeah, yeah. This is why Fair projection enough. is so sexy, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you rather think, I'm sorry, I have this argument with everybody, go, man, you love how to kill a love story when I say, well, you know, who, what part of you is like speaking to you here? Yes. Um, yeah, it is a lot sexier. And by the way, it's necessary. How the hell would you yes. recognize yourself if you didn't look at it? So I'm not downing it. I'm just saying at some point, if you're having a true relationship with a person, you got to stop that because it's it, it's impossible to have a real honest conversation with someone when they're holding on to a part of you that you refuse to own, whether it's for good or, or bad. Um, and we do this all the time. I mean, we do this with parents. We do this with a whole bunch of people. Again, we get back to the central problem. I think a lot of people don't want to do this work because, frankly, it's not a lot of fun sometimes. It no. really does require humility, right, about yourself and about the fact that the ego isn't the only thing in town and the ego wants certain things. And maybe that's not what the world is meant to give you. And yeah. so you have to accept that. You know, but, you know, in, in a way, this is not different from the Stoics. It's not different from all the philosophy that's been mm -hmm. developed. It's building on it. Uh, you just, it's a way of understanding that, um, it's a very complicated world inside. <laughs> and so the outside world is equally complicated. How can it not be, you know? It's a reflection. You said, you said earlier the, the, something I, yeah. You said about somebody that uh, they, they were critiquing this and saying, this isn't making my life any easier. And <laughs> no, it doesn't. And, 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 but the, the, uh, the, the issue there is the attempt to make life easier is part of what gets us into the problem yeah. in the first place. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is where I think I love Hollis. Do you know you had, I just quoted this the other day on Instagram. He had to, because I've had people come on the Instagram when I, on my Instagram account, when I've um, quoted Hollis and said, he's so negative, oh, he's so dark. And so I, I quoted, I think it's in Living Between Worlds, where he says, folks accuse me of being very dark. But he said, look, if you want to follow the people that promised you uh, happiness and, and you know, an easy path, go for it. I just haven't found it's worked. And I think that's actually honest. And that doesn't mean, and by the way, when I say it's difficult, yeah, it's difficult because it's difficult for the ego. It, the ego hates undressing, right? It hates having to tear off the face and be, you know, the flawed, ridiculous person we all are, right? That That's what happens. But it's so much richer. Once you start mm -hmm. in it, it's like you just, you can't go back because you realize I don't want to be wearing these, you know, these these parts that don't fit anymore, but because I have to, you know, please the parents or please the husband or please anybody, you know? So it's liberating at the same time that it's difficult. And ultimately, you're, I'm sorry, you become better to others in one way. Um, I think when you stop assuming the world is responsible for everything that's happening to you, you stop blaming people. And that if you can only yeah. do a little bit of that, you know, honestly, that is 
that is probably the best thing you can do for for the world at large. You know, the rest of it, I mean, the big theories, whatever, okay. But it's actually the little day-to-day affairs where you're not finding the enemy. And we see this in our current ridiculous uh, political kind of uh, I said this enemies enemies everywhere I said this with um with Richard Rohr so you'll you'll remember this but I when I was doing my research I listened to the Brene Brown conversation with Richard Rohr and he said on her podcast uh, that gratitude is the only practice that can withstand the temptation to resentment and he, he defined gratitude in a very different way this this idea of being undeserving you know and I think I've probably said this on every podcast since then which is uh means of course it meant a lot to me the fact that you're awake, the fact that you can experience this existence is miraculous. And yeah. to your point, all these little things we get, all these wars that we play out yeah. there, we forget the war inside here. Yeah. And yeah. I, that's one of the reasons I respond so favorably to depth psychology is yeah. that it meets us there. It meets us yeah. in not the attempt to get rid of symptoms, to mm-hmm. make life easier, to make things more simple. I, I don't want to engage in that approach. Yeah. It's to, to honor the complexity the enormous weight, the the existential angst of existence, and then what happens when we meditate on our death or we meditate on the reality of reality is that life happens, yeah. beauty happens, you know, yeah. you, oh, what a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. d- That's just, exactly the way I look at it. And, uh, and I don't know how you teach. I think you have to start at home with, with the way you're, well, I think you have to started by living it yourself. And I think yeah. I think the word that comes from what you're saying is a word that I'm very enamored of, which is curiosity. If you have yeah. a symptom and you're curious about it, right? Instead of like, why is this happening to me? And if you're curious about everything that happens, even the bad, especially the bad stuff, I think sometimes it has a bigger story to tell. It doesn't mean I'm not going around telling people that your your mind is creating your illness. No, no. What I'm saying, well, I mean, I think the mind and body are connected, but what I really think is what we don't bring to our lives is that sense of curiosity because we're so quick to, to, to and I think we've been trained by parents. I mean, this is just the way it is. At least, my, you know, this is a kind of cultural kind of framework I was raised in. So you're trying to find something to blame so you don't have to really sit with a symptom because the symptom is painful. And it's, uh, but sometimes it's telling you something you need to know, including, I'm, you know, uh, maybe I'm on the wrong path. I mean, when you're feeling a bit depressed and this is what Hollis talks mm-hmm. about, right? But that means you have to make change. And this is why sacrifice is at the heart of practically every mythological system, right? The idea of changing is very hard for people. Like if you have to change your path to accommodate the fact that you're really feeling lousy as a banker, you might not do it because it rewards you enough just to keep you there. And so a lot of the questions that come up, I think, for people at midlife and whatever is the sense of like, I'm not connected to something. But in order to be connected, what do I have to give up? And I think it's in the giving up that everybody gets stuck, right? Because it's a lot easier to say, well, you know, but on the other hand, and you see a lot of depression. I mean, I see it around me and I think it's sad because... You know, part of it is the search to say, okay, is this, and sometimes you can not have to change necessarily anything on the outer world, but to understand what drove you there and, and just even the inner search, put it this way, um, is fantastic. You know, this is, you're, you're talking of, I've got a, uh, a copy. It's, I found it in an estate sale and I got a, I got it for a steal, but I've got a late 1800s, um, uh, a divine comedy over on my, uh, oh, wow. like a, <laughs> yeah, it's very a good. kind of an altar. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's th- this narrative, like when I really yeah. started digging into Dante, I was blown away by what was happening with, with him in the, in Florence and how he, yeah. his identity was totally like, he had this trajectory and everything. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm, I'm set. I'm Rick. in with the family. <laughs> I got my reputation. And then yeah. he's kicked out. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and the story of Dante's Inferno yeah. is what emerged from yes. that descent yes. into his yeah. hell. Of course. 
So, w- w- of course, people don't want to do this. <laughs> you mean, oh, you mean, bad. <laughs> I got to go into that place of disgust and nastiness yeah. and all the shit that I've accumulated yeah, yeah, through yeah. my, come on, yeah. like, I want to read about it. Oh. I know, I know. And you don't want to do it for the collective. You're saying, ah, oh, forget the collective. That seems to be too much. That is exactly why Dante is so powerful. And he's still read today and people are still obsessed because he's really not speaking of people. Oh, it's a Catholic this. No, no, no. He's speaking about an inner journey yeah. of having to, yeah, yeah. Being stripped down of everything, of identity, of everything you love and, and forever, by the way. And then having to, to, to process that in some way, you know? So absolutely. I would argue that a lot of our great works are probably those kinds of journeys. You know, someone I, went on a journey. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. Like, I mean, I, I talk a lot about it because I really am a big fan of Wagner's offers, even though let's let's be clear, he was a horrible person. And this brings up to the whole question about is the artist, like I'm really not that interested in his biography. I'm more interested in what came out of his unconscious. And he was composing at a time in the mid-19th century when you're really getting a lot of the depth psychology before depth psychology. That's yeah, Dostoevsky's yeah. time. And that's, I think he's dipping into that mythological world, you know, because someone wrote a great book about him called Turning the World Around and uh, about the whole philosophy you want to call it behind the ring cycle and and it's a guy who used to teach the classics here at the university of toronto and give talks on wagner and he's now passed away he's fantastic and he talked and he used to do the talks for i believe the met uh the intermissions at the new york uh, metropolitan opera and his name is father owen lee and he so he wrote in a wood jungian kind of way i don't know if he was reading young but a lot of what he looked at uh when he looked at wagner he saw that he saw that mm-hmm. depth psychology one of the things he said is he wrote out of an abundance of his own need and i think that is probably what's going on okay in, what a great in, way it's to like say an that. inner an inner need to get something yes. right that is definitely not being lived out correctly right um and so you go inside and you kind of balance it out by by this in his case this obsession with the mythological material just incredibly rich and then of course used in ways that was you know awful but if you actually just listen to the music and you listen to what he's trying to do in terms of what he's trying to access it's the feminine again that's mm-hmm. at the end of the ring cycle it is brunhilda who is the hero of this? Just like at the end of Goethe's Faust too, what what is what are the words? Hail the eternal feminine. Yeah. All of these people are actually trying in themselves. I don't think I had anything to. Wagner was an egomaniac. He was not interested in the least of bringing anything but his incredible genius, which he talked about. Okay, <laughs> but which is what makes him so annoying. But anyway, many things make him annoying. But the music itself transcends all of that for me. And I think there are artists who pay a heavy price in some ways. In his case his own way um and who and who you know their lives can sometimes create mayhem for everybody around them but somehow their journey is really significant and it is an interior journey it may not be recognized like that uh, by others but it's definitely an interior journey and a fight a battle within and the greater the battle the more likely the work is going to be impactful i think yeah go go back to that for a second because you're talking about something that is really powerful that all great works uh, your your theory here that it's yeah, possible theory. let's be a little yeah. loose it's yeah, possible yeah, it was, that all great works yeah. are a descent into the inner yeah. world. So speak about maybe some stories that come to mind. Or you, I'm just so well, excited just about said, your interest no, no, in so, literature. So Faust, uh, Dante, the one we talked about, the the one certainly Wagner's, uh, especially Tristan and Isolde, and I would say Parsifal. But the Ring Cycle really is also, this, this is why it's so, it's considered a cathedral of a work. 
Um, and then I go, that's why I'm attracted to Dostoevsky, and in particularly the one novel that a lot of people don't read, The Idiot, which features uh -huh. Prince Mishkin. Fantastic. Again, another. And then, I mean, for God's sake, the United States has one of the best battle inner battles I've ever seen, and that is the uh, Captain Ahab and, and uh, Moby Dick. Um, again, you're talking about yeah. stories where we can we can relate in that you're reading it and you're thinking, my God, you're being driven. And, you know, today, I mean, more contemporary authors have always been a huge fan of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who knew how to navigate the world by flying through it metaphorically. It was amazing. And Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie's Midnight, Midnight Children is a great example of an inner battle that is projected out into the world that he, mm -hmm. he was born in 1949, you know? And so, yeah, I think some of the better, the, the big epic writers are writing, they think even historical novels, but they're actually not. It's almost like you're dipping in and that that battle is within you. You couldn't, I can't imagine that just all of these figures that they create, they have to be somewhere in the psyche. Where else could they be? You know, you're not basing it on anybody. And this is what I really want when people talk about the Red Book. It, it, that's why it's a novel to me and the way that I describe a novel and that it's a, a, a fundamental conversation you are having with parts of yourself. And that's definitely what was happening in the Red Book, right? He was feeling them. But I got to tell you, when I was writing, when I'm writing, I kind of feel these characters too. I can't explain how. I can just say that there's a sense going on that these characters are inhabiting me. And I know what they're going to say. I know what they feel like. I can't, looking is a different thing. I don't operate from that. But I have a, the sensation function is weirdly, and the feeling function is weirdly engaged. And so that I, I feel these kind of stories are living through me. So that's what I'm thinking happens with, with these great works. So fundamentally, to be a great artist, am I arguing? I may be arguing that you really need to have an incredibly insane inner war going on. But that is that is probably the case. Right? I think I'm never going to be a great artist because my war is bad, but it's not really that great. <laughs> you know, I gotta, I guess I have to find bigger battles. I don't know. But I have seen that. And I mean, I nobody can prove it, of course, but you do know the unconscious is involved. That for sure. You know, absolutely. That's that. Uh, thank you for this. So, uh, Wagner, okay. why? What? What? What drew you to Wagner? I think Wagner drew me the mythological material. Again, he is the one that does not present. Okay, Puccini. You know, everybody loves Puccini. How can you not love Puccini in terms of musically? Beautiful arias, very expressive, very emotional. You know, Wagner's music is not that way at all. Like, I mean, you have to struggle really to to understand. But I think. The thing about him is when he he creates a story about love, it is love on a high order. It's love on the highest that you can imagine, right? It transcends. That's why Tristan and Isolde can never, these two can never come together unless there's a death, the death of each of them, right? Because he's speaking about great mythological truths that are being worked out inside of you. If you're putting an artist in a garret like Puccini does, then you're locating it in time and space for me. And you're saying, oh, poor artist. Oh, my God, failed love affair. Oh, my God, this is really tough. Yes, it's a story. But this kind of transcends um the story that's limited to space and time it goes beyond that I, I don't know if i'm expressing myself well it's just something that seems to speak to a higher part of ourselves a part that doesn't get spoken to very often and the music is doing it too that's the other thing it's not just the words because he wrote all of his libretti which is really unusual and he was a terrible writer according to the germans that i uh, that do read german his stories were very mythic but the actual writing is like oh you know but the music what he does with the music is is quite amazing he's, he, the fact that he introduces the idea in the ring that a person could be singing something, but the music in the background is giving you motifs that are telling you what the psyche 
is basically saying of that character is pretty amazing you know like i mean now maybe we consider this pretty you know run of routine but not at all for the time he was really breaking every every rule um so yeah i i just absolutely feel that uh he speaks to the deaf psychologist and all of us if you're willing to give him a chance and by the way i can totally understand people saying he's you know he's on he's crazy his music is insane i mean he invented his own tuba the guy was definitely like completely not but on the other hand i always tell people if they want to just give him a chance and 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 you know can override there because there's a lot to worry about with with he was anti-semitic he was horrible to women he's horrible um but I, I invite everybody to just put on the overture to parsifal and just put it on listen to it just the overture and and see what happens what he does with the strings and what happens to your body because i'm very much about uh okay well here's a question i want to ask you john and it leads into this feeling function if you want to confuse people with typology, you bring in the feeling function, right? Mm -hmm. Because even if you read von Franz and Jung everywhere, they even contradict themselves either. It's mm -hmm. not emotion, it's feeling. So the only way I've understood mm -hmm. feeling is body. What yeah. what resonates in my body? Does that make sense to you? How do you totally. define it? Totally. Okay, yes. good. Because that's the only way I can understand it. So when my body feels congruent, I feel like a feeling has come in. And that's why I think feeling is often associated with the feminine psyche, more than the feminine, because it's that notion that there's congruency without mind. And so I think what happens with Parsifal as an overture for me is my mind shuts off and it completely, the body sort of connects. And and that's an experience you can only get with certain pieces of art, I think, um, and certain moments in your life too, you know, in a church sometimes, you know, if you're hearing a beautiful choir, I mean, there are moments, right, where you just connect. That's the feeling function at its highest level for me. That's the only way I've been able to to describe it to people. Because you're you're fused together with something. Yeah, yeah, it's right. almost like the, the, the antithesis, of course, if you think of the opposite, the thinking function, thinking disallows that, it somehow intrudes, and then you're kind of, you're kind of uh, describing it, oh, I'm listening to Parsifal, and I'm yes. hearing this, it's like, yeah. that's not the experience, it's the experience, the body experience of what's going on there, that's where I, I think mean, the feeling function can be uh, located, to me, that's the only way I've ever understood it. You know? Solid distinction, thanks for this, yeah. this is a, yeah. to, to be able to think about feeling is, is, is fun to yeah. do with you. Yeah. Well, feeling, I mean, uh, feeling is the one we all have problems with, right? It takes a lot of people a long time to connect to the bodies enough. I had my wonderful analyst, Sylvia Semensky. She would she would always pause before she answered a question because she was checking with her body. And she taught me that. Mm. She said, you're talking too quickly. Stop. Just feel what's going on. And it taught me that in any mm. situation, if I can find that space, and of course, I'm such a fast speaker and everything is on high speed. But if I can find that space and just check in, my body often tells me something that my mind isn't isn't picking up. And that's when I know that, okay, uh, this is, and she did that all the time. As a matter, she would wait, listen, then speak. And I thought, hmm, and what are you listening to? It wasn't her mind. She said, no, I'm checking and my body will tell me. I thought, wow, that's, that's such a crazy concept. But it was a completely important concept for me to be hearing because it's what I did not know how to do. So I worked a lot on that in the last, <clears throat> I'd say, 15 years, just trying to let the body speak a little bit more. Mm. And once you do, it's funny how other symptoms get reduced. I think sometimes the body is trying to knock on the door for you, say, come on, listen. And then you're actually listening in and things start making sense on the level that I cannot actually articulate. I can just tell you that that's what I've noticed over time. A, a, a person I'm working with right now, some, doing some business work with, uh, he asked, a, we were talking about men and uh, this question to men, you know, where, where does that happen in your body? And mm -hmm. if that is a confusing question to you, then we need to explore what's happening. Mm -hmm. Because it, just to ask that question of like, where, where does that, where does that start in your body? And somebody's right. like, well, I don't give a shit. What do you mean? Like, uh, what are you talking? <laughs> You're like, okay, I, 
now I know where <laughs> we it. need to go, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's true. <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, this is why mindfulness practices like the body scan are so helpful, totally. I think. Um, I don't know if you've read Dan Siegel's work on this, but yes. uh, mindsight is fantastic. It's yeah. the idea that some people have trapped emotion. I have it in my group. There are people that can't fe feel parts of their bodies internally. They cannot feel them. And that to me seems, well, it's highly metaphorical where, where you're not feeling it. But what's trapped in there? It's really interesting. And it will show up in their dreams sometimes, which I find also fascinating, you know? So it's almost like, yeah, the, the body is not being listened to. And I think Marion Woodman was very good at bringing this out because I don't think Jung and himself on the body side was, I don't see him as a great theoretician of the body. Like I don't, like when I think about it, I go, okay, where did he say? No, it's a lot of the people who followed him. And I think Marion Woodman in particular, yeah. having attended some of her workshops here in Toronto, she really wanted to bring the body online because she herself being in, having a history of being an anorexic understood that she, she really understood. And I think people that go through extreme suffering really understand there's something going on that I need to investigate. She did. And I think on behalf of all of us, and we remind you until you can connect to that part of yourself, you're not really connecting. You're actually missing a, a very big part of the mm. whole thing is uh, there's a guy called Stanley Kellerman who wrote a book called Your Body is Your Unconscious Mind or something of the like. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that's it. Basically, the body's telling the story that mm. the mind, which is the more conscious mind, can't pick up unless it's listening very carefully. And when I say listening, I'm not thing listening here. This is what's really hard to explain to people. It's listening with the whole body just to tune in and wait. But yeah, I mean, you tell I've had, I have had people in my group who say, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. How can you listen to your body? It's like a practice that you have to do a couple of times, I think. And then once you do, you see the, the value of it. And then you continue, hopefully. Yeah. Unless just it's that, too painful. That, that wait piece. Yeah. Don't answer so fast. Just Yeah. Ask. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's hard this to idea <laughs> that we have a lot of parts of us. Yes. You know, like we're not some like unitary being. I'm a lot. I'm a multiplicity. And that of kind of baffles people's minds yeah. a lot. I don't understand this. Okay, so let's go back to archaeoastronomy, which is why it's so interesting. In the ancient world, we understood there were many planets representing many different energies, right? Call it energies, call it archetypal principles. Yeah, Venus, which is a love principle, it's Mars, whatever. There was an understanding that there were many, many gods you went to if something was wrong. If you wanted a yeah. love potion, you didn't go to Mars, you went to Venus. If you wanted a, you know, if you wanted some discipline, you went off to Saturn. The reason that is a rich mythological language is it understands the notion of parts. You're not one, yeah. you're many. You're not the sun, you are the many things that are there. Um, in, in the hands of a lot of um, uh, the way it's marketed, it's unfortunate because it misses the real beauty of it, which is it's connecting. It's the biggest connecting language we have. Why? Because, again, we all look up. And I think what it teaches you more than anything else is can you, what part of you are you neglecting? Some parts acting out because you're not, you know, David Tacey in, in one of his mm -hmm. books, we were talking about David Tacey earlier. He, and I'm sure you've heard this before and probably um, talk about this, about how um, suicidal ideation, that what really what you want to get to, what you want trying to kill or transform is one part of you. But mm -hmm. the part has confused itself for the whole. Now let's get back to McGilchrist. Don't you think that's a fundamental problem in our world? We've yeah. actually like we've confused the part for the whole. So you have climate issues. You have so many issues that are mistaken apprehensions mm -hmm. of this lack of multiplicity. If you understand everything is very complex and it's full of many parts, then maybe you can isolate that part, take it aside and say, can I have a conversation with you right now? Because th this is the part that's ailing. But if you think that's the whole thing, it's a hard moment. And I think this applies in so many things in life, not just in serious uh, depression, right? But yeah, yeah talk to people about it. This is why everybody wants one God, right? Because then it makes life easier. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to think of well, a so God. Socially, <laughs> it makes life easier. Socially, yeah, yeah. Because what we do is we fragment, right? If I, if many gods, and then all of a sudden I'm bound down to Mars, and you're bound down yeah. to Venus, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and then now we can fight. But if 
and this is part of the value, I think, on some level between the Abrahamic traditions where we say, hey, let's let's come together under one voice, you know, one allegiance. Right. And rather than have all these gods, disparate gods that right. we can fragment right. with, you know, like I I love the image of the Pantheon. I love right. the image of going in there and being amongst all the gods. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. feels it, that feels like my kind of pagan polytheistic yeah. self yeah, is yeah. activated. You know, That's how I feel, too. Yeah. And I feel that way because I understand that uh, there are different parts of me. You know, I can be in a situation and a different part of me can be arguing with the other part about what, how I'm perceiving something. And I'm aware of that. And I think that takes a little bit of consciousness. Like if we have to go in and, and examine some of your thoughts and that again, we go back to people don't really want to have that conversation with themselves right. because we're looking for certainty. Certainty gives us safety. Safety means I have to think about it. I just accept and let's move on. But again, a richer life says, again, curiosity, I just think it's such an important word. And I hope I taught my kids this because I certainly preached it. If mm. you are constantly curious about why you're being reactive and you give that yourself just that amount of space, right? I mean, it's happened in meetings. We've had like, you know, charged conversations. And then I'll say, oh, okay. The part of me that just, you know, this is me. It's not you. It's actually, and I think this is useful conversation. Does it make me look like a raving lunatic for maybe 30 seconds? That's okay. I'm willing to live with that because the information is so important. You've heard about uh, Jung's later uh, life when he was in his 80s and he was living alone in his little cottage and he'd sometimes start screaming at things. <laughs> and uh, his his cleaning lady was like, oh my God. And it was like, no, he'd say, oh, I'm learning something about myself today that I didn't know. I mean, right in his 80s. And I'm thinking if Jung was in his 80s, understanding that he could still blow up about small things, but that it could still be information. Who the hell am I to say that I'm not going to be learning these things the yeah. same way? And in fact, what a great way to look at life. It's like, okay, I'm not failing. Because the, the real thing that I find, and this again, I go to Woodman in her uh, book, Addiction to Perfection. I think the worst part about the masculine in its excessive form is the need to be perfect. It is just so damning. You know, perfectionism brought to, you know, and I see this action in all the so-called influencers, men in your age group, you know, going around mm -hmm. saying, you know, intermittent fasting and your body. And I just think, what the, what, okay, and women too. I mean, I'm just saying that I noticed it with men lately because it's crazy. And I think, well, okay, why? What What the hell are we aspiring here? Like, is this really, but it's this, this cult. If, like, if I'm perfect, then everything is going to be okay. Yeah. And so I must listen to 17 podcasts that tell me what to eat, when to eat it, how to exercise. But ultimately what I'm thinking they're missing is that this part of the conversation that, well, what is driving this need to have that kind of body or that, what is it? It's not health. It can't be health. Oh, no. Health is balance, in my view. It's whole, it's wholeness, right? So so it's a really, really fascinating time to live in. And it's a fascinating time to live in. And I think it's all because we now have access to so much we didn't have access to before. Mm. On the one hand, that's great. Because I love it. Right. Researchers like, wow, I can go into Internet Archive and find practically every obscure book in the world. I love it. On the other hand, we're really being saturated with a lot of stuff that is really hard to to understand and yeah, it's creating a lot of the parts war out in the world. And then I guess the only thing to look at is to say, okay, well, what part of me is responding to it? And can I, can I have a conversation with that? But then again, it takes a lot of work. You're doing this on a constant basis, right? It's very easy to go unconscious. I certainly do it a lot because it's easier just to be reactive and go, okay, that was, that was the world doing this. But, but I think honestly, it's not. It's probably you reacting to certain parts of the world, right? Well, it's just a, I get to, here's my one nervousness. I, I agree. Okay. Totally. I totally agree. And what can tend to happen is that when you get a personal typology that is involved in self-blame right. and what can oh, happen okay. is that there's, I'm just thinking the the one kind of subset of this is that, oh. yeah, sometimes the world is doing something. Sometimes the world is 
whatever that narrative is, the way you're responding to it is important to pay attention to. And so that part of that both and is that, yeah, I need to learn how to deal with whatever's going on here. And all the shit that happened inside of me as a result of that is something that I then get to take and explore and evaluate and make time for. And, and so we're talking about this as a, as a dance between, you know, the, 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 for example, the scientifically reductive men who you come up against in your entire life and who (laughs) do whatever it is they do, you know, to the, the women or to the feminine. And that's real. That that yeah. that happens, oh, yeah. you know. And yeah. but but then also the ways in which, as your book indicates, right. you do that to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and by the way, you just made such an important qualification. This is by no means saying bad things don't happen. They do. Yeah. And you need boundaries. You need and this is where the mask and the feminine's mask and to say here's the sword. You cross that boundary. I yeah. think young women have to be taught this very early on because they tend to be at a disadvantage sometimes in understanding this. I use the frog prince as an example of how a kiss can go terribly wrong because that's not what you need. You need to fling the frog, not put the, uh, I read uh, that. not yes. kiss the damn frog. Yes. I was like, what are I you doing? That. You know, that's, yeah, because I mean, a young woman knows how to stop it. Which is why I'm teaching my six-year-old how to box. Sorry. Yes. I <laughs> know. <laughs> I think it's great because listen, boundaries are the hardest thing we actually, uh, that's one thing the masculine is so gifted at and something the feminine with no boundaries is so bad at. So not, nothing that we're saying, or I'm saying, I hope we should be interpreted as things aren't bad and people aren't, I mean, bad, that's such a ridiculous word. There are a lot of tragedies out there, right? Yes. And a lot of people do a lot of harmful things and mm-hmm. you have to address that. There's no way. I mean, I, one of my favorite books also that I quote a lot is Vassal uh, Van der Kolk's book, yes. uh, The Body Keeps the Score, partially because he understands trauma's there. It's really, it's like you can't deny that people have been heavily traumatized, right? And so you address that first. And then I think only after some healing happens can you even begin to think on this level. I don't know in your experience, you're dealing, you're clinicians, so you deal with people. But until you can actually address those early things, I think it'd be hard to actually start looking at the world in a wider way because mm-hmm. you still have to process that. So absolutely. It's not either or again, it's both. I'm saying more, I, what I was really kind of referring to, John, was with the craziness I see in the, in the Twitterverse and the yeah. Instagram and just the crazy arguments that you know erupt between people. Which are well, all ramdas it, things, you know. It it's like something that right. you brought up in your book. You know, you yeah. you said it earlier. The the internet wars, and I think that's a you use that line in yeah. your book, that um, that there are internet wars, and I'm I'm yeah. wondering, given that was such a central mm-hmm. um, thread in your novel, right. um, what do you think about all that? What what comes up? Well, for you? I think that. That's why I wrote the novel because I saw it, but I but I also thought this is a reflection of the inner battle we're all having. It's just it's just being projected collectively by all of us, right? And it goes down to one thing, and I'll go to Ramdas. Uh, they need to be right. We are so invested in being right that we will vote for people who are hurting us. We will join the groups that don't help us. We will align ourselves with causes that are hurting the planet, even because once we invest our energy mm-hmm. into a belief system, and yeah, it doesn't matter. It applies to every party. So I'm not. I'm not picking on one part or the other. We have a habit of wanting to stick to an idea, yeah. uh, even if it kills us, because that is so important. And that's the ego's favorite to, trick. So I always say to people, look, I've done a lot of uh, the Jungian stuff for sure, but some of the things that I did that was most powerful for me personally, and I think everybody's different, is Sufi meditation. I did this started mm. years ago. Because I think combining both those things, the idea that you start really seeing 
how the mind is working internally mm -hmm. and, you know, the kind of stories it tells you, which is pretty weird because I'm, you know, call myself a storyteller, but I understand that the lens that you bring to anything in your life, the story you tell about what happened is much more important than what mm -hmm. they, what really happened in a way, mm -hmm. right? Because it's how we're filtering, interpreting. In cognitive science, my, my son pointed out, for example, that uh, when you, when you have a memory, let's say you remember it the first time, something happens to you, okay? The first time you retell that memory, that's stored into a part of your brain. And next time that you actually tell that story, it's that first time that you told it memory. It's no longer the original memory. And you can go down the line. And this is the problem. We start, at some point, we start re-mythologizing our own life into whatever happened becomes the retelling of what happened. This is why stories are so absolutely fascinating and powerful, but they're also operating on many other different levels. So when I saw, what I when I look out and I find it depressing, you know, these people arguing with each other about, I'm right, you're right. I mean, this is what it all comes down to, right? What else could it be? And then it get really nasty and they, it's silly. And, um, and I think to myself at the end of it, it's because you are so aligned with a position that you can't let go. Your own humanity has been put aside so you can stay to that position. How do you fix this? I mean, I don't know. It's such a big problem. I don't, I don't know if there is a fix except to have, okay, conversation is really super important, which is why I think the kind of podcast you do is very important. When, when you hear people working through these ideas, and we're not all going to agree, and I'm probably wrong in 50% of what I say, that's normal. I'm investigating just like everybody else. But when, you, when you're actually sitting down, and this is why the, the conversation I have here with the group is so important, you're really trying to, in a way, sort out all these things. You know, in a way, but it's it's respectful. It's it's it, you listen to the other person. Obviously, mm -hmm. you're not having a conversation, and and then I think that's the only way out. I mean, can you think of another way? I, I don't. You know, you can meditate. You can take ayahuasca. I don't care what you do. The world is going to be the world until you yourself are in right relationship to it. Which for me means, a admit that the world is lousy. I, I love what uh, what uh, Joseph Campbell says. The world's a mess. It's always been a mess write yourself as much as you can and get going because that's kind of true right i yes. mean we can do what we can and we should be aware and politically active when we feel we need to be but ultimately i think for me jung's greatest gift is to tell you work on yourself that's the mm -hmm. first starting point and that does mean what you said which first work through your traumas because there are very few of us that have not had a past that included some form of trauma and they, they could actually condition everything you're doing so yes that's the first starting point at some point, hopefully, you are ready to take on the second part, which is, okay, now I want to have some conversations with these these characters that are inhabiting my mind. I say, write a novel. It sounds like a lot of work. It's not. It's fun. And see, what, who is inhabiting? Who Who's sitting in your mind, you know? And well, how are they feeling? It brings up a question here about, I'm thinking about anybody watching or listening, that yeah. how does one know whether to go inward or outward? You know, like that's yeah, the, yeah. what do you say to that? Cause I'm, I, I think you have curious. to do both. I'm sorry. We're back. We're yeah. back to the same thing. So sometimes something will happen that really upsets me. I get really upset, you know, and I think, okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. Um, I realize my husband over there isn't getting that upset. So what in me is, is really finding this hard to digest. And like you always, you'll be upset about things that maybe I'm not. I mean, th that doesn't that always give you some curiosity? Why are you reacting in a specific way to something that somebody else is going, yeah, whatever, you know? Um, so that's one uh, strain. Of, but I mean, it's happening at the same time. I think you have to look mm -hmm. at the other world. I don't think anybody, do you know what Margaret Mead told Jean Houston, which I thought was very interesting on her deathbed, because Margaret Mead, even on, on her death, Beth, bed seem more interesting than most people you'll ever meet. Um, she said to Jean Houston, you know, forget everything I taught you. This is after Jean Houston has been, you know, basically falling around Margaret Mead for ages. Forget everything. She said, 
the world will only be changed by a dedicated group of teaching communities, small groups getting together mm -hmm. to talk about these things. In part, that is what fueled the whole Sophia group idea. The reason it's solved, and we're not solving anything, we're getting together, we're talking, is that I hope that everybody who leaves the room after we've had a conversation is perhaps has understood to take back maybe a projection we talked about, you know, mm -hmm. because they'll talk about, oh, I had this reaction. Okay, let's let's work through that. When you do that, you're going to do a little bit less damage because next time you catch yourself, you hopefully find that space to say, I'm not going to throw out the words that are going to hurt you, <laughs> the other person, right? So it's little work. It's work that is not going to be seen as great, great. You know, everybody loves the great grand historical narratives, Napoleon, you know, Stalin. This is little. This is the kind of thing the peasants working out a little system where they can, but that's okay. That's, I think, because we have a habit of wanting the bestseller, wanting the big podcast. People don't understand how much good can be done by you talking to Richard Lohr. I think you have to understand mm -hmm. how important it is to listen to those conversations. Mm -hmm. If we're not having this, then we're just overwhelmed by loud voices telling us that we need things, we have to buy things, and we have to exploit people, or, you know, the other side's awful. So I, I hope that people like you, and I think this is the answer, by the way, what you're doing, John, is the answer. By having conversations with people that are thinking deeply about this and then mm -hmm. putting it out to the world and not worrying about... Because, look, you may hit the one person who has the ability to impact 2,000 people that very day and you don't even know about it. So that's my answer. It's the only answer I have. Um, I don't really believe in big anything anymore. You've really got to go about it this way. And that begins with the individual willing to have them to sit down. And I really believe in groups. And in your last uh, interview, you talked about how women don't have groups. And I agree with you. There's not a lot of women's mm -hmm. groups that are not built around having a glass of wine talking about a novel. This isn't what I have here. This is not what we do. Um, I believe there's a place for that. This is not socializing on that level. This is more, we do want to talk about these reactions we're having. We do want to be honest that well, I don't want to be driven this way. I'm glad you brought that in because uh, let yeah. me just tell you, and as you were talking about this early in our conversation today, I had that thought of, thank yeah. God, thank God you're doing, thank God you're doing this. Thank God you're bringing yeah. people together. Because I, I know, had a thought of, a, of many people that I work with that I'm, I yearn for them to have a space like what you're talking about that you've created. And I think it can be created. I, people have asked me on Instagram, well, what, what do you do? Can I join your group? And I said, well, first of all, we're in Toronto. And secondly, I cannot take any more people. But what I say to people is form your own group. Yeah. Form it by what do you need to talk about? Bring them in. You start with a book. Start with a James Hollis book. Discuss that. Uh, that's how we started. I just got them to read this stuff because it was a foreign language to them. But over time, what you find is people really open up in ways they don't open up in, in mm. their normal social context, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, we don't have husbands here. We don't have siblings. It's a really good thing to be, do you know what I mean? Because it can, can confuse things. Yeah. Uh, we do work with gene material a lot. I disagree with Jung. Jung was very much against groups. I know where it came from. He lived through a time where group psychology was, was difficult. But I have to tell you, the group uh, nourishes yeah. each other in a really big yeah. way. I mean, someone has the answer. Uh, the guy that I took some training with was Jeremy Taylor. He wrote the book. He used to go into um, into uh, basements. And he had, a, he had a very interesting way to approach it. He said, look, when you're looking at a dream in a group, you say, if this were my dream, when yes. you're talking about the other person. Yes. Because immediately it says, I, I don't know your dream, but if this were my dream. And what happens is it is where the alchemy happens. Somebody in the group comes up with a word that the other person does this and goes, oh, my God, this yeah. links to this. <laughs> yes. If we're a one-on-one -on -one analyst, that would not happen because <laughs> the analyst may not be on that day, right? No, or whatever. That's I mean, right. there's so that's many ways. Right. So I trust the group. I think the group is a very good thing when it but I also realize it's not for everybody. Some people don't like being in these uh, right. groups. They so I understand that too. But but it's worked. And I think female women in general, I think that you talk about men's groups. I think this is something women should be doing. You know why? Because women should be discussing ideas. That's part oh. of what we want to develop, you know? I know. Not adopting well, frankly, other people's ideas. 
<laughs> I grew up as a man who almost, I hung out with women. I, I just, I liked the conversations yeah. better. I thought it was yeah. a, I just, I wanted to be in that space. I didn't yeah. do the whole, I mean, if you want to, if this is such a stereotype, but if you want to have a joke on me, ask me what city the team and mascot yeah. and all that. I'm like, I don't fucking I don't know. Care. Like, I don't know. I want to talk about the flowers outside and the dogs yeah. that we love and the, it's, of course, I'm relational. And so it, it's. Uh, yeah, you are relational. But that's why you could have such a beautiful interchange with Richard Rohr, who's other relational. And I think that's totally a really is. good thing. Yeah, I totally. totally it's is. amazing. So, but the thing is, that's what we need. We need, the, just yeah. like we need good critical thinkers who are feminine uh, thinkers because we tend to associate certain things. Again, we, we're, we don't want to reduce the feminine and masculine going, returning right. to that into gender. But the fact is that we are socialized, let's face it, yes. to behave in a certain way. So you're socialized, well, you must like sports, right? Not hanging out with the women talking about, you know, deep things or whatever, or the flowers or looking at the flowers. And that's just a shame, but that will change. That will change with good parenting and different parenting. Yeah. But ultimately, I do think in the value of community and just getting conversation. This is what links all my life. I thought, what, what links my life? Because I've been like everywhere and done nothing really at the end of the day. I keep throwing darts out, hoping something lands. And actually hoping it never lands, by the way. But anyway, um, I think what's what's always guided me is the need for conversation. They need to have really deep conversation. I don't yeah. want to talk about politics. I don't want to talk about sure in some contexts that's fine. Okay, you have to you have to participate in whatever. But in general, the the nourishing conversations I want to have are what's going on in your inner world. I'm just fascinated yeah. by people's dreams and people's stories and how they see and perceive things. And so there'll be somebody coming in and they'll they'll just have this the story they tell. And I think, wow, why are they telling it in that particular way? And then you mm. ask them and they work through it. Very powerful stuff, really. It's, it's a way of getting to know yourself, you know, uh, fundamentally. Yeah. I'm having a blast talking to you, by the way. This is this is fun. I'm having a blast talking to you as well, John. And I want to, again, reiterate that it's it's because you're doing this work. I was kind of worried because for a while you didn't have, you had a period where you weren't doing them. And I thought, oh, don't disappear no matter what yeah. happens. Because hey, you're picking people that are off, off some people will never hear about, you know, some right. of the people that you've introduced me to, I would never have heard of, and they're actually doing some pretty important work. And and then you're also having conversations with people that a lot of people heard of, but you're having a different conversation. So yeah. that's great. But again, the value of this that you're doing, I know you have your clinical work and then you have everything else, is I think bigger than you might imagine, which is why I mm -hmm. want to keep emphasizing it, because all too often, um, you know, people think Joe Rogan, 20 million downloads, and it's like, yeah, no, in that space, we need to counter the noise with some other kind of maybe other voices. That's all. And this is where multiplicity comes in. Mm. You want to hear from many voices, right? You know, I there are so. many approaches to things. Of course. Yeah, there they do. Yeah, I uh, so. honestly, if people don't get caught up in numbers because that's a, a, a trick of the mind as well. Yes. But to get caught more up in, okay, who's listening? Who's listening to this stuff? And how, and who are they talking about it? Because I brought in stuff you said in your podcast because you've got followers in my group and talked about it here. And we've, the, the conversation has now gone from where you are to here. Right. Oh, nice. And we, and it touches and how it touches our lives. Well, how is this impacting us? What has he said that actually relates to our life? That's where things get interesting, don't they? That's oh, they sure do. This is, I, I had no idea this, the group, the group dynamic. So my whole clinical practice, yeah. well, not not the, I have a number of clinicians yeah. here, but um, my my practice is moving almost exclusively to groups for okay. a number of reasons. But yeah. one of them is this, like I, I'll, I'm running a parenting group and a couples group and of course a men's group. And my wife and I are yeah. going to run a kind of masculine, feminine dynamic group. Excellent, love it. Um, teen group young adult, because of this the the, the miraculous yeah. nature of building safety 
building yep. a heal healing community together. Yeah. It's a sacred space and watching what happens. Yeah, yeah, it is oh. powerful. And I did do a lot of analysis one-on-one -on -one, and nothing has fed me the way these women do when they come in here again, five hours. And, and I can't, people always ask us, what do you do? I can't tell you what I don't know. I can't. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Something happens. So we all leave and we're <laughs> hugging and like, oh, we've had this transformative experience. But if somebody said what exactly was said, nobody could tell you. Uh, my, my, my proudest moment is in about eight years into the group, two of these people meet at the same talk by Umberto Eco. And they're with their partners. And they're kind of talking and they, the partners say, oh, how do you know each other? Oh, we're in Bea's group. And and uh, and one of them turns to the other and says, oh, are you the same profession? And they look at each other and they say, I don't even know what profession she's yeah, in. Yeah, I don't know what you do. That's yeah. the moment. Yeah. Yes. Because it doesn't matter. And that's I thought, oh, that is the, that's the greatest moment. You're not defined by the role. You are who you are, right? Great. That is actually the kind of thing I think we need it's more so of, right? I have a, so a brother. Yeah, my brother. This is my brother. One of my brothers in life is a man yeah. in his 70s. And he came out to my office recently. And uh, and we know each other deeply, deeply, but have no idea about the details of each other's lives. <laughs> and we were commenting on this. Like, he sat down. He's like, so, you know, uh, what do you do? <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's we, great. I hate yeah. that definition. Yes. I hate being pigeonholed by what do you do? It's like, what do you, what do, you do? Yeah. I live, but I do many things yes. as I live, right? But yeah, it's, you're immediately categorizing people. And, and it's it's a bit of a diminishment because then you can't get outside of the role, right? Oh. Or you're an architect or you're this. Um, and, and it limits you. And so, and also it's not relevant unless you had a dream where maybe it speaks to something about that's, you know, often you have dreams which are related to what you do in the outside world and there's some whatever. But in general, I find that no, it's actually not about that. It's about processing stuff, right? Um, but yeah, I could not tell you what we do, but I'm so glad you're doing group work because I have heard from some Jung and saying, oh, that is misrepresenting Jung. Well, first of all, I'm not in the Jung cult. Yeah. I read a lot of people. I have, you know, I consider them one of the teachers that is, but yes. secondly, I've seen it in, in action, right? That's all that matters to me. Do you see this working? And does it, does it heal me? I can tell you, these women have done more for my healing than anything I've ever done just by being present, just by being here, by willing to discuss things that are uncomfortable sometimes for all of us. Well, and this um, is the, yeah. this is the point about uh, clinical work. You know, if, I think one of the beautiful things about doing clinical work is that if you're doing theory in the moment, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah. You know, I like would think that that's the case. Yeah. That's that everything is thrown out. Like I, I'm yeah. uh, to, to be a classical Jungian, I'm much more red book than I am uh, <laughs> yes. personality. And, you know, <laughs> Well, you know, honestly, the Red Book is the foundation for everything he said after. Yeah. He codified it into theory, but the Red Book is everything. What you're really telling me is you're more on the artistic level, right? I mean, you're approaching yeah. things more from the intuitive <laughs> case. Yeah. It's like, yeah, which kind of makes sense, right? Because you're a musician, it makes sense. Uh, yeah. But also it's yeah. the orientation. Like you feel, and I honestly, I'm more of an intuitive feeling type. And that's how I approach everything. I kind of feel my way into things me and too. then, and see, right? Which means that sometimes I, this is why I have so many books around me. I'm trying to I'm trying to get the thinking on, and sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, I'm with you. I have this. I have the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Same compulsion. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Well, look, I want to be conscious because yeah. we got to start okay. shutting it down. But I'm okay. I'm curious about any threads that you've got that we haven't addressed. And no, 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 no. I'm just uh, right now. Uh, I'm going into the astronomy world. I hope to emerge a couple years later with with some probably nothing. No, no real end. Oh, goal, I but... doubt that. 
Oh my God, it's so fascinating over there. That and thank really God I read, I read Spanish and, and a, couple, you know, a couple of romance languages because of being born in Spain. But And some of these people are, are there, so that's helpful today. But I mean, today, one thing I can say about uh, AI is ability to actually translate basic academic texts is quite simple if you don't have it. So yeah. it's, that is one good use for it. But beyond that, no, I just continue having my uh, group sessions. I continue encouraging people like you, please continue doing the podcast. And, uh, and beyond that, you know, life's pretty good. I'm pretty happy. And that's all you could do, right? You're a, this has been, I love, you know, cause I, I just watched you're what just you're doing. You're just very generous, John. You know, you're so I, well, I, such I'm, a generous person. I'm so really love, yeah, well, you're so sweet. So I just, I was following your work and I was just yeah. seeing it, seeing it. And I was like, this, this is a human being who I want to like know more about. So I looked at your website and I was checking it out. And then you were propping up your book. And I thought, well, hell yeah, she's got this book out. I want to, and then I read the book and I'm going, this is a perfect conversation for what I'm up to. This is great. And is this I, the first fiction writer you've had, by the way, on? I was thinking, I has he had a fiction I, writer? <laughs> I don't know if you had it, because I listened to most of your podcasts and I can't remember if you've uh, actually had a novelist. You, I, that may be right, Bea. You yeah, may be yeah, right. Yeah, because <laughs> that's why I was hey. surprised you. I was so surprised you invited me. I went, "Why is he inviting an novelist?" Okay, oh, here we are. <laughs> you kidding? Like this is uh, it? Well, it it's very telling, I think, for the 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 expressions of the archetypes. You know, the the ways that the archetype kind of um, colors are um, the output. You know, like the, what it ends up coming out on in our cinema, in our literature, and yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. You know, we see different forms of the archetype, different forms of the gods that that are in the pantheon, yeah. and then yeah. we we are able to um, image and experience our relationship to those forms. Right. So, right. I I love the fact that you're uh, you're you went the literature route. I I, I think oh, yeah. that offers a great deal of service for us on the collective. Right. Well, I love it. That's that's what I do. <laughs> There's I no doubt you do. <laughs> Well, look, yeah. I, thank you okay. uh, for this time. You're very time. welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I really enjoy you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Love <laughs> Control.